Ho, ho, ho. This is Gil Manser welcoming you to our 2015 Holiday Gift Books edition of Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. What do bird portraits, the Golden Gate Bridge, dining in the Yucatan, an illustrated Harry Potter book, carved ivory chessmen, and a road trip with Gloria Steinem that lasts 81 years have in common? These fascinating topics are all included among the gift books we will be chatting about with Cheryl Cotler and Michelle Bella, the book buyers for the Copperfields bookstores. Cheryl and Michelle, I want to thank you again for continuing what has become an annual tradition on Word by Word by sharing your favorite ideas for gift books with our audience. Thank you. Thanks, Gil. Now, one of the things that's different, you send me a list each year, and this one you sent one which has some secret information in it. Because I know how many of the books, what you call units, have been ordered. Uh, did you want to do that? No. Um, <laughs> we, you should know that that's a beginning order, first okay. and second off. I forgot to take it off. Yeah, I figured that was the way it worked. Well, anyway, it showed me some interesting things because I had assumed certain assumptions. In other words, the name brand authors would have you know, more books ordered, or local authors would have more books ordered. But this does not. There's a book that's called M-Train, which has the most number of units ordered. I realize that actually it's not just the initial order. It's also the reorders. Oh, okay. And um, Warehouse reorders. Yes. Warehouse. Oh, okay. So Patty Smith is the author of M-Train. And if some of you may know her from her writing on poetry and music, and she wrote a book called Just Kids a couple years back that was did very well about her early years in New York and Greenwich Village with Robert Mapplethorpe. So this book is her musing the, on her the life. The world-renowned photographer who caused such a flurry when he was up in museums. Yes, yeah. yes, who did beautiful work. So she is someone who spends a lot of time in cafes. And by the way, you learn a lot about coffee in this book. She's also, though, she's musing on not only what she's observing, but places that she's traveled in her life, in life and including some amazing journeys she did with her husband. And uh, there's a journey into the deep wilds of Central America that is worth the price of the book alone as they trek through uninhospitable land to um, look at things they want to go see. And then she, years later, is sitting in cafes, not only remembering that, but observing the life around her. It's, it's, it's really a wonderful, wonderful book. So are these essays, short pieces? What are they? It's a memoir, but it's a memoir that has a lot of cultural resonance around me. You know, you could say it's a kind of a philosophical memoir, but not difficult, not, you know, so difficult to grasp that you would put it down and wander off, as evidenced by how many millions of people have bought the book and read it. It's really doing very, very well because it's so fascinating. So then one of the other books, and this did not surprise me, that uh, 
uh, because I've heard her talk on the radio about it and other places, is Gloria Steinem's My Life on the Road. And it literally, it starts at her before her birth, really, about uh, and all the, the places she's been and the people she's met and the people who just appeared on her doorstep, and she didn't know who they were. They were just friends of the parents and turned out to be really important, famous people. You know, this is a perfect segue. I, I was actually thinking about how several of these books kind of match each other. And this one matches Patty Smith's book in the sense that, yes, again, there is a lot of traveling, even more so in the case of Gloria Steinem. It's astonishing how much she is on the road. Now, a lot of times when you read about people's lives and they've started right out from childhood being dragged around by parents and not having settled in very many places for very many years, you tend to get these biographies that will talk about how disruptive that was and dysfunctional to the family. She has turned that in some way to find the strength in always in traveling so much and how it informed her and how, in fact, it's not only a large part of what she credits her own personal growth, but also the growth of what she calls the revolutionary movement of equality. She has met the highbrow, the lowbrow. She's traveled to remote places. She's traveled to major cities. She has talked to women and communities and people all over, men and women, about women's rights and how they are making do and what is happening in the world. And And she's now 80 years old and she, she looks fabulous and she's still trucking away. She really, really loves this what she's learned and how this enriches her life. On the idea of travel, I'm going to go to another book called Pacific because it is the, the our Pacific, our Pacific Ocean, which, of course, is supposed to mean peaceful but is far from that. Uh, and the, the shores of lands that, you know, where the Pacific Ocean comes ashore is the kind of the connectivity of it all. Really, that's – I'm glad you said that because it's a large part of this book, Pacific, which is by Simon Winchester. So many of you know him for his earlier works. He's always an interesting writer. So he's not only chronicling the actual Pacific Ocean, but he's exploring the Pacific Rim and the West Coast of the United States and Canada and the and the um, Americas around the fact that he supposes that since the 1950s, or he is projecting since the 1950s, that the center of power is moving from the Atlantic coast of, so therefore the eastern coast, west, eastern coast of the United States and Europe, the center of power globally is moving to the west coast because of China and because of the uh, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, Seattle, and so forth are all showing enormous amounts of growth based on this reemergence of a new sort of regional power. Now, not all of these things that are happening are necessarily um, good in the sense that there's issues of pollution in the ocean, there's issues of um, how tech in, uh, brings both prosperity and also uh, greater inequality. And there's a lot of different things he's examining, but, but he sure connect, does. But connectivity. But connectivity, connectivity. And he sure does know how to tell a tale. Yeah, yeah, that he does. 
So that one's great. Now we're going to segue into the sea, which is surprise. What do you go Pacific to the sea? Pacific to which the is sea. a um, tell us what it is. This is uh, an official table, coffee, desk, coffee coffee table, table book. book, right? And it does have some valid information, but really, it is beautiful. <laughs> some invalid some, information? No, 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 no. no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> That's not what I meant. But yes. it is a very beautiful book with gorgeous pictures that anybody who's interested in the ocean, I think, is going to absolutely love this book. It's, 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 it's quite oversized, though. Yes. It's really big. You need a big table. You do need a large coffee Won't table. Won't fit on your that. lap. Definitely not reading in bed book. No, not no. so good for that. Also, though, dealing that's with that's good. The Perfect. Sea. See, you are. Every, you must have known my script here. I intuit these things. Um, California's Wild Edge by Tom Killian, with poetry by Gary Snyder, is a beautiful artistic interpretation of the West Coast of California, and it's all it looks very much like here. But he does. Four color woodblock prints. He's based out of Marin. Right. And he did the uh, the posters for the uh, uh, park system. Yes, he's done yes. a series of posters. His artwork is beautiful, and it's just more interesting every year. And this one is very general. It's not one particular section. Well, he's kind of what is it, Santa Barbara North? About is that well, it? Well, it looks mostly Mendocino to Santa Barbara. Okay, like this is kind of coming, all right. right. Well. Where, yeah. where we are. Our coast. Yes, yes. our coast. Yeah. And with some lovely poetry also added in. Well, yes. The, yeah. It's mentioned who's the poet again? It's uh, Gary Schneider. Good. Yeah, our yeah. local poet. Yeah. yeah. One of the One many. One of the many. Yes. Uh, and tied along with that is a book. Do you have it here about called the, about the bridge? I didn't bring the bridge with me. It okay. Is, well, we can, can we talk about it? It's a picture book that is a crossover between an an adult picture book and a kid picture book. Mm-hmm. I guess it could go either way. It's quite long. I think it's about 40 or 50 pages. And it's from a local publisher and it talks about the Golden Gate before the bridge existed and then deciding the community effort to decide what color the bridge was going to be and then mm-hmm. it just showed up as this incredible orange bridge and it was supposed to be painted gray. Right. Like every other bridge. So say the title. This is the perfect time for that. This bridge will not be gray, right? This bridge will not be gray. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be gold, as I remember. Well, I don't know that it was ever going to be gold. Yeah, it wasn't really gold. That was one idea. It was was always called the Golden Gate before the bridge. It was kind of a copper-based paint. When they, anyway. That was because they had all yeah. this stuff left over from battleships that wouldn't, you know, which would prevent rust was the theory. Right. Uh-huh. right. I thought yeah. that's what the orange was, though. Yeah. The international the orange, is, orange is yeah, also anti-rust. It, or, it, it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we got, we got all kinds of things about the water. And we're going to do another wonderful one because we are on the picture book. Uh, and you handed me one when you came in, which is like is called Bird Love. Ah. It is a large book, not quite as large as some of the others, but there is is this is an owl that is on the front, it's an isn't owl it? Owl on the cover. This is beautiful portraits. And on the back, if you turn them around, birds. that's the rear end. <laughs> yes, you don't always get the rear end of every animal, that's but you right. do get the the one on the cover. Um, this is beautiful portraits of birds. And talk about minimalist in text. They, it says what the bird is. That's it. What, what more do you need to know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I there, guess there is there a little are. bit more information okay. in the back. You could go there. I, or I was going to say everybody could go to the Internet and find out more there about are, it. No, there is another book on birds. That This Thank is you. the beautiful, gorgeous book. And then there is the Cornell Lab 
Ornithological Lab, which is world-renowned for their bird research. For their ornithology. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it is called The Living Bird. It is a little smaller format. The bird photographs are amazing. They're all taken in situ, so they're in flight or landing or you know, turning their head, so forth. And the information is fascinating. It's just a wonderful book. Much, much more detailed than... It's more detailed. This has better pictures. Uh, well, yeah. there's studio photos. Yes, yeah. See, that is different. Yeah. It's, and, different. And it's different. They're posed. They're, they're, Absolutely. They would make a good pair. Yes, I, yeah. they are books, to both of them, books to love. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we've talked a little bit about picture books. We haven't mentioned a sync. Well, we sorted it in passing. What about books for younger people? Well, talk about books to love. Here is, there is a new version this year of the first Harry Potter book. Yes. Which is illustrated, and I know, I am amazed at how much fun it is to reread it in this format. It's, it, you can't really do it in How bed. many years has it been since it came out? Us. Uh, about about thirty years, it was no. eighty no, something, no. wasn't it? No, 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 I think it's about twenty, isn't it? Twenty, you're about twenty. I would 20. guess twenty. Yeah. Well, yeah. I could probably look that up. But um, anyway, what? Anyway, we've got new kids, and we've got the kids who first started with the series are in their twenties now, and they're really enjoying rereading it. Is mm-hmm. what I'm getting. There. So mm-hmm. open up some pictures for me. I see that they, we've got the uh, the train on the front. And inside we've, oh, I see. We've got, got Hogwarts. It's with heavily, heavily Hagrid, illustrated. Heavily illustrated. Is that the full text in this? There? It's the full text, and it's heavily illustrated as they get further in the series, because this first book is smaller, shorter than yes, as they get right. further. It's going to be very interesting. I think she got paid by the word or something. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm kidding. Do you, do you want to talk about the, uh, the chessmen yes, now? Yes, I do. So now, Harry Potter plays? Now I'm going I'm to pose this as okay. a question. How many of our... Listeners, remember a very special chessboard, a very set of, you know, special set of chessmen that Harry Harry himself played with in the movie, the first movie. Uh, and it's modeled after. I don't think it was the real thing. Yeah, it was. A, was well, it? Well, it's the real. It's, the it's real, a replica. It's a replica well, of, yeah. Yeah. of a of a real, uh, what is it, walrus tusk carving chessman. So that so, brings us to a book called Ivory Vikings. What uh, So Ivory Vikings by Nancy Marie Brown is a book that tells the history of the Lewis Chessmen. That's their what they named them. This set miraculously washed up on a Hebridean beach, Hebridean beach. Breach in, a, in, be, a beach in the Hebrides. A beach in the Hebrides. In which the is ni- off of Scotland. Yes, in the 1850s, they guessed that it was in a chest because they found 75 pieces pretty much all at once. And archaeological research turned up that this chest set was carved in the 1200s. The other really interesting piece that is discussed in this particular book is that it was a woman, they're pretty sure, who carved this chess set. And that itself is remarkable and different. How can they tell? There's ways that they can match the work really? with other pieces and with um, logs and records. Hmm. And um, I, that was my first question too. I yes. think it's an obvious. Yeah. Yes. Was, yeah. There's. It was, there's, it was, it was actually a twelve-year-old child. Yeah. 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 With a sense of humor. So right. this, the thing that's remarkable about these chess pieces are that they have 
they use them to as a way to have discovered about roughly speaking 400 years of Norse history. The chess pieces indicate the different um, levels of life, the kings and the queens and the pawns and the knights and the way that they are have expressions on their faces in these chess pieces. And for example, the, the pawn is a character that's called a berserker, which is where we get the expression going berserk. Because in that culture, a berserker used to work himself into a frenzy. With the aid of some chemicals. Yes, and bite his shield before he would go into battle. So um, this is really a remarkable book and probably my favorite nonfiction book of the season because it's just fascinating for 50 different reasons and from beginning to end. Illustrations, great story. It's uh, something anyone could love. So we'll call it nonfiction history. Yeah, uh, but, yeah. But with a story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Inspired by the chessmen. Well, it's all about the Lewis chessmen. Right. Ivory Vikings, the mystery of the most famous chessmen in the world and the woman who made them. Yes. That's the subtitle. And the woman who made them. Yeah. Yes. And that's the part that intrigued me, the woman. How do they know that? See, well, you'll have to read the book. To the, yes, I will. That sounds like a good... A good segue into what other things should we be re- – one of the things I do want to talk about, one of the things I do want to make sure we cover is a book called uh, The Other Paris, which is sort of ties in, I guess, because it's another part of the world. Um, and what it has done, it has collected um, vignettes from various writers and photos, historical photos of uh, – posters and French postcards that used to be sent, you know, the naughty ones and such and such. And it shows a different side of Paris, what we, I guess we'd call the left bank or sort of like that, the part that uh, was hidden from the view of the majority of the people who would visit, unless they were looking for something. What I like to tell people, especially local people, is that if you think of how the Barbary Coast informed San Francisco, the other Paris is that piece of Paris that informs Paris as we know of it today. Now, this book is really pretty much focusing on the outer rings of the central Paris from the late 19th century to the early early 20th century. It's really t- taking a particular time. So about a 10-year time period? Well, I think it's a couple of decades. Okay. And this outer Paris was populated by tradesmen and craftspeople, artists, including Picasso and Balzac, but also a lot of not-so-famous people, including prostitutes and musicians and so forth who, in fact, made a culture and a community in such a fashion and enticed other kinds of um, growth to happen in these outer neighborhoods that this book postulates that this, this, these communities have much more deeply informed Paris as we know it today than is credited and, you know, given that some – all the things that have been happening in Paris fairly recently, I think it's especially interesting to read a more broad approach to what Paris is really about, what how Paris developed, what culture, what influences, what well, kinds of people. Yeah, if I may have, interject, it's what cultures yes, came cultures, into Paris. Absolutely. Yes, cultures, absolutely. Because they, they – um, 
Yes. You know, historically, for a variety of reasons of where France was in the world and where people came from as a result to the great city, other than those who were escaping, you know, the expats who were going there because they thought that, you know, you could live on wine and love, right? Right, right, yeah. right. But anyway, a fascinating book. It's it's really wonderful and lots and lots of illustrations. Lots and lots of uh, black and white illustrations. Some yes. color for it from the posters, but mostly black and white. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. I love those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Real history. Okay. Well, let's go to a completely different continent, but in a similar vein. We've got Mexico from the inside out. Aha. There it is. So this is a cookbook, and by the way, it's by Fiden. See, see how we transmitted, you know, from one. Yes. Well, to it, you've done a perfect job. You, Thank you. You don't even yet know how perfect, because, <laughs> because um, this is a very a cookbook published by a very famous cookbook publisher, Fiden, who always does these amazing, beautiful, well photographed and gorgeous recipe cookbooks. But here's the thing: so you get the recipe. Uh, for something like mole and wonderful photos, including these are photos of people making these recipes in Mexico in the on Yucatan, the street isn't it? in the Yucatan yeah. and different parts. Right. So in oh, between, that's... in front of most of the recipes, is something that's called a thin parchment page insert mm-hmm. that's smaller than the rest of the page, and it is a story about how what the person that was tasting this recipe felt, how they remembered their grandmother made it, or what how the Spanish translation or the Spanish uh, name of the recipe, what that translates out to in terms of things like um, the saying here means something worthless, but that's not actually the case with this particular vegetable that they use. So... This you is can the, do we, we, two things. Let's go things. back and let people know that was the Romarita yes. salad. Yes. So yeah. you can make great food, but you can also completely immerse yourself in the culture of Mexico. And when you serve it, you will have all these anecdotes to share with people around the table that Absol- just happen to be there in the book. Yes. So it's yeah. my favorite. That's I'm glad great. you brought it up. Well, then I've got the Yucatan um, cookbook mixed up with that. There's another one called Heartwood, and that's the one that's set in the Yucatan. And who's this yes, by? Yes, this is uh, the bright wild flavors from the edge of the Yucatan. It's called Heartwood. Oh, the edge. It's is this Eric, the sea edge? Or yes, the, we're, we're okay. definitely on the coast here. Eric Werner and Maya Henry, and they're transplants from the United States, I, th- I believe from New York City, that decided that instead of going home, they would stay in the Yucatan on a whim and create a restaurant, I believe, with no electricity. It's very rustic and rural using the, the, the world around them. It's, it is eye candy. And actually, they, these recipes do appear to be very doable. They don't have a million ingredients. They don't take a, a lot of appliances, obviously, to make because they were made in a kind of a rustic setting. So I have I'm, it on I'm good gonna, authority. I'm going to make a suggestion that you sell that in the um, section of the bookstore that's there for emergency. <laughs> yeah. So when the power is out, if they happen to right. live West, around West County uh, sustainability. Yes. sustainability yeah. yeah. What a great that's idea. A fun idea. No, I mean, yeah. you yeah. have to have the ingredients on the shelf, right? But, or in your backyard. Or in your backyard. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. We can add more mushrooms. Not after that frost anymore, though. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> so the only other cookbook we brought was is a 
book called Crossroads that is quite challenging, I think, as far as some of the recipes. But if you are interested in... Challenging to make? To make. Okay. Very complex. Ah. But also really, really good. And it's vegan, but it's not really about being vegan. It's it's like being vegan because the food tastes so good. Well, yeah. there's a different idea. Yes. Right. It's yeah. not a lot of substitution, like we're going to make yeah, it taste we're like pork. Yeah, going to make it taste yeah, like right. turkey. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, so. I don't remember right now where the restaurant is, but when you eat at the restaurant of the chefs who did this cookbook, their first cookbook, there is nothing there that tells you it's vegan cooking. They simply choose to make the best cooking food and recipes and menus possible, and they happen to not use any animal products. And one of our coworkers, who's the cookbook buyer, Elena Trucker, was invited to a small dinner at a private home to that the chef fixed for everybody. The chef flew in from Southern California, I believe. And she said to please mention it was some of the best food she'd ever had in her life. So the name of this book again is? Crossroads. Crossroads. Like Tal Ronan. And it's called Extraordinary Recipes from the Restaurant that is Reinventing Vegan Cuisine. Uh-huh. Okay. So we've done, wow, we're doing really well. We're going through this list here. Tell me the book that's on the top, the classic. We just had a retelling uh, illustrated version of Harry Potter, but we're going to go back to another, what, two centuries ago, I guess it is, yeah? I, I'm not quite sure if it was that Well, long, uh, okay, but we'll, we'll yes. yeah. This Whatever, is a, long a new version of Peter Pan. Actually, it's not a new version. It's the old story. It's the same story as ever, but it's got incredibly intricate, illustrated, um, they're calling it interactive elements. Ah. So it's, it, isn't, it isn't made of plastic. It's definitely very kind of delicate work here. But it's got maps. It's got little pinwheel things. It's got lots of ephemera in the book itself. It doesn't come out. All the pieces, I think, stay right. in the book. Right. But they add a very interesting experience to your reading. It's something you will not find online. When I would visit my grandparents, my grandmother liked to take books. And as she was reading and she or find things other places, she would insert them in that section of the book where it referenced. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And picking up this book, I immediately went back to Desert Hot Springs, California, where you're borderless. Heck, during the time that you're there, but she had a wonderful bookshelf, and the books were illustrated really by her with this ephemera kind of stuff in it. It adds. It, was, it, really, it really adds does. to the story. Yeah. Now, this brings up an interesting question, because that's, a, I assume, a more labor-intensive book. I don't know how they put it through on a regular book press to yeah. get it together like that. Somebody seems to me has to be involved somehow it's with fingers and... That's a far more complex uh, printing process than is usual, and as... Um, Michelle pointed out, you absolutely do not get any kind of experience whatsoever if you were to listen to the story of Peter Pan on a in a, in a uh, iPod or um, over a computer kind of way, because this book requires you to touch things mm -hmm. and make them work and turn them and flip them up and two or three times yeah. to see the photos underneath or the drawings. Or make the little whirly gig actually whirl or right, put right. the little... You know. And the cover is nicely embossed, too, yeah, like an old book. Like yes. an old book, yeah. like mm -hmm. an 1890s style book, yeah. yeah. very. Yeah. It feels good when you pick it up. It does. And they're making a new one. I believe it's going to be um, The Jungle Book next year. Ah. So it's a series. Same kind of thing? Same kind of thing, yes. That yeah. would be fun. Yeah. This yeah. is a 
kind of book that you really want to give to uh, your child or neighbor or grandchild where it's part of the library forever. Yes, and it's you know, it's it really not is it's not as inexpensive as other kid books, but it's 27.99. It's not like it's 40 bucks. It's not it's yeah. not it's yeah. no more than an adult hardcover yeah. book. Well, it's been interesting. Of the books that you brought in here, we've had half a dozen with different uh, printing formats, I guess yes. we call them, where yes. we had the you know the slick covers of the illustrated birds and then you know other ordinary print for where the text is done about what the birds are you saw earlier. And this other one, which had the inserts, the little, yes. what do you call them, folio inserts about yes. you know the different people and the history of that particular recipe right. from Mexico. Right. I think people, the publishers are trying more and more to come up with tactile experience for, for reading. It's not just, it's not all in your head. So it's, you can't get it on audiobooks or, or download it on, for your iPod, huh? Yeah. No. Yeah. Hmm. Makes well, sense to me. Yeah, as a bookseller, yeah. <laughs> I think that would. Even the yeah. cover of the Mexico, the, from the Inside Out cookbook, is kind of a linen feel. A linen feel. Yeah, yes, and it, I can see, it, it does. It, it uh, yeah. reminds me again. As you look at these books that you brought in, it reminds me of different decades of when how books used to be made. You know, during that time period. So it's mm-hmm. it's fascinating. To, I think to, we to could see. be entering a, a renaissance of of bookmaking, and you find that with printmaking too. There's a lot of printmaking going on and handmade books. Handmade and, books. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. It's a good time for a break. You are listening to our 2015 Holiday Gift Books edition of Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Once again, we are pleased to welcome the book buyers for Copperfields Bookstores, Cheryl Cotler and Michelle Bella, with their challenging task of choosing which books to talk about in under an hour. So stay tuned for more gift book ideas right here on KRCB-FM's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers. Okay, so now, hmm... Where to delve next? I think that we were talking about, you know, beautiful books, beautiful children's books. And this one that's sitting in front of you right now. The Marvels. The Marvels. Looks like something from, that it would be, you know, Jules Verne's kind of cover. Yes, It's it gilt-edged, um, I don't, is that what they call that? Yes, uh, the, the gold edges. Gold edges on the pages. On the pages. Yes, and it's The front a, is gilt big. with an ornate uh, diagrams, and it's very hefty. Yes, this is a heavily illustrated book. Brian Selznick, this is his third book, and his first two, The Invention of Hugo Cabret and Wonderstruck, are the same type of format, many, many pages of, of pictures, where Complete are, are pictures they charcoal and no text. or, or uh, pencil drawings? Don't I know. think they might just be be pencil. Pencil drawings. I think yeah. they're pencil. I think they're actually relatively small. And so this particular book, the way this one's formatted, they're all slightly different. Is I'd say two or three hundred pages of images, mm-hmm. and in as you look through them page by page, your mind creates a story. And then there's a couple of hundred pages of text, which is a different story, but. But now that you've read this story, you can go back and see something different in the images. And then there's several more, um, I don't know, 80 pages of pictures at the end. It's So tell me why uh, the book is formatted that way. Did, did This is the his personal this thing. No, this is this thing. guy's vision. And he designs the book. Right. When, he, when Hugo Cabaret first came out, I thought, oh, that one's about... French filmmaking, and mm-hmm. I thought the mm-hmm. kids. How are kids gonna, you know, deal with this? And I, so I gave it to a few kids that they ate it up. They loved it. They they understood it 
instantly. No problem at all for them. It's the 35-year-olds, the parents that are having a hard time. But very interesting, very interesting story. Would be fascinating to take that book into a classroom and hand it out to, you know, 20 kids, 25 kids, and have them come back completely independent of what they found. Well, especially if you took just the beginning, just the pictures, and said, you asked them for their story, what they thought would be just that part. And then you'd share the story. Right. And they'd say, wait, no, I didn't see that. No, no, this isn't my story. I think Brian Selznick's, one of his major gifts is he really creates books that are an invite imagination. And and that's what you do with this. You, you, you tell yourself a story when you're going through the graphic novel part of it. And then you end up reading a story that's sort of the same that you got and maybe not. And then you go back and do the graphic novel again. And it's this absolutely endlessly fascinating loop of imagination. Yeah. It's very interesting. So, what's the price on that one? That's a heavy gold, uh, a literally gold bound. It's thirty two ninety nine. Well, that's not too much. It's it's a big book. It's a big, it a impressive book. gift. Yes. Certainly, yes, it is right. nice. Um, I, I think that his books are all going to be. There are things you you don't get rid of. You would hold on to this for a long, long time. And and I have another classic kid book. Okay. This is not an old old book like Peter Pan. But these are the complete Brambley Hedge stories by Jill Barklam. And they were written, I think, originally in the 80s. And they they describe her perfect society. And I was looking. One of the nice things about having the complete stories, you get a little bit more from the author about what she was thinking. She says, Brambley Hedge is my ideal world. The way the mice live is completely natural, which is how I think life ought to be. They appreciate and use everything that grows around them. Theirs is a loving and caring society, but the mice are not just serious and worthy. They have fun. Life is a series of picnics and gatherings, parties and outings. And they have, she's lavishly illustrated these detailed drawings about what life is like in Brambley Hedge and all their societal interactions. And and it's wonderful and nothing horrible happens to anybody in any way you know their their stories are heartwarming and sweet the illustrations are somewhat reminiscent of beatrice potter's work similar and in some ways um she but does the a lot story of... that she offers is much more uh complex and interwoven this is this is more straightforward story of all these people. It doesn't have people. Or, mice. Well, mice, mice, <laughs> mice, people, voles, that kind of thing. But she's got a lot of detailing, like cutaways, where she'll have a whole head, um, a trunk of a tree would be where this something somebody lives, and she'll have a cutaway that will show all the different chambers and the little staircases and the detail. And it's it's a really nice read aloud for kids, about five, four to seven, kind of read aloud. So okay. I, we have a whole list online of classics that are really – we people seem to be wanting to give their children classic books right now. I mean, maybe they always have, but I'm seeing it, and I'm seeing the publishers come up with some nice compilations of books. There's a lot of Alice in Wonderland right now because it's the 150th yes. anniversary, so there's a lot of editions. And there's – Some very strange ones. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that seems appropriate for right. Alice in Wonderland. But um, – a lot of the classics are great fun. Since you mentioned online, our website is copperfieldsbooks.com. There you go. I think. I hope. No <laughs> no apostrophe. No, no, no punctuation in websites no, ever. No. Um, 
We we have these lists um, on our website, and that's and you have them to. in the store too. You have yeah, the, absolutely. The, the, uh, what do we call them? The cards. That? Yes, we yes. have we have our picks here with, right. with books that we like, and for the kid ones, we actually have more. Also, we like this one too because you can only pick twenty books to recommend specifically, and there's of course. 120 books that we'd like to recommend. Now, so, there's a question for you because I, I thought of this the other day. Was when I was in a store that wasn't downtown Sebastopol for a change, and um, noticed that there was a different uh, group of book groupings of books. Is that a good way to put it? They're not. It's not cookie cutter at all. So, do you have different kids' books recommended at different stores, or do you use one list and then? The local people add to it, or how does this work? They have every store has their own staff picks, what they like, and we then generate some that are from me as the buyer. So right. I've got I get to put in, but I get input get from the, the stores. The well, I get input from them and what they like too, right. because they need to read them, or it doesn't really work at all. You know that there's there's a lot of kid books because because you want all the classics and the new stuff, and the way those things are interwoven together, it's it's. There's no lack. It's kind of a both. You know, buyers buy in things they think we can sell in our communities would love and we love. And then we also completely encourage and make efforts to help flourish the tastes of the staff in every store. They know their communities very well. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a real good synergy. Yeah. Well, we haven't done much with novels. So I think that's probably a good time to visit Miss Allende, don't you? Yes, so Isabel Allende has a new book. It's always a wonderful thing when we get something from her. She Her new book's called The Japanese Lover. She's such a great storyteller and, and also a love story storyteller. In this case, there's very much an older woman who is in an assisted living home who has brought on a woman in her 20s to help her manage a few things in her life. And the woman in her 20s also begins to look at the journals of the older woman and discovers that perhaps there are... The older woman escapes with nobody in her life um, once a week, and it turns out that she is revisiting her long love affair with the son of the Japanese gardener that they had when her family lived in San Francisco, I imagine the house near Seacliff. So the exploration of this long love affair that was held in secret because they were from different cultures, A and B, the Japanese family was suddenly swept up and put into internment camps so the the discovery of this long love affair that still seems to be going on through letters is the crux of this book and it's really an an exploration of the young woman and the old woman finding their way and finding their heart. Hmm. Interesting. We have another uh, well-known author. His novel is called Twain and Stanley Enter Paradise. And you're going to say his name for me. It's Oscar Huelos. Huelos. And Oscar Huelos, most of us, most of you would know, won a Pulitzer for his first book called Mambo King's Play Songs of Love. <laughs> this is a really interesting story for several reasons, but one is the backstory. Oscar had been working on this book for 12 years. And he actually had a heart attack in 2013 in New York while playing tennis, died suddenly. And the book was through its umpteenth draft, but not quite turned in yet. So his 
wife gave it to his editor. And this was the love of his life to write this book, because something that I did not know was that Mark Twain and Henry, Henry Morton Stanley actually did have a friendship. You may know Henry Morton Stanley from his famous trek through Central Africa to find Dr. Livingston. I presume. Yes. Yes. And so he was an explorer. So this book takes the actual historical fact of the friendship of Twain and Stanley and fictionalizes what they would have done together, what they would have talked about, where they would have traveled together. It's a rich and engaging, fascinating novel, and it's really something that would be good for anybody. It's it's smart, but it's not um, difficult. It's smart, but not difficult. Yes. Intriguing. Intriguing. Catches you. Yes. Captures yes. you. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Homer Hick- um, Hickam. Do I should know that name. It sounds You should familiar. know that name from Rocket Boys. Oh, that's okay. Right. That's why. Yes. They uh, made into a movie called October Sky. Very good. Thank you. Yes. So Homer Hickman, you know, this book, by the way, is called Carrying Albert Home. And gosh, you know, once in a while, you just want to read a story that you hold the book to your chest when you're done and just swoon with how funny and charming and sweet and crazy it is. And then you just want to talk with your friends after you finish reading it. So this book <laughs> About is book. based on yeah. Homer's parents, based on a real story. Homer's parents, his wife, I'm sorry. Homer's mother was dating a man that you may recall, you may know who he turned out to be. His name was Buddy Epson. And this was in Florida. And yes, Buddy was making a name for himself as a vaudeville tap dancer and so forth. So while Homer's mother was dating Buddy Epson, Buddy Epson gave her an alligator, a very small baby pet alligator. Okay, so that relationship doesn't well, of course, last. You know, diamonds yes. are forever, but alligators. Absolutely. Yes, right. So this is you know the early 1900s. So they, um, Mrs. Hickman, doesn't the, the relationship doesn't last. So she meets Homer's father. They get married and they move to Oklahoma, I believe it is. And the alligator keeps growing. Mm-hmm. So yes, one do. day Homer gets snapped at. I mean, Homer's dad, one time too many, and he says to his wife, I'm sorry, that's it. Either the alligator goes or I go. And she agrees, okay, honey, but we have to take Albert back to where he's actually from. We can't let him loose in Oklahoma. He won't live. So they do a thousand-mile cross-country journey. And they, this is in the 1930s or so, and they run into bank robbers. They run into true, real stories of crazy things. And so it's a caper. It's hilarious. It's nutty. It's sweet. And really, ultimately, it's a long-term honoring of a love affair right. and a marriage. The title is called Carrying Albert Home, and I assume Albert Was is, the al- the alligator. is the alligator. Is the alligator. And they do it. Well, I assume in 1930s he was the alligator. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. They might. He might still be alive. Hard to say. Okay, we have some uh, other children's books on this list here. We have Diva and Flea, which is an illustrated book. Diva and Flea is illustrated, though it isn't uh, technically a picture book. It's, okay. It's like well, a, we're a first, a first here. reader, you know. Oh, okay. You, so kids could you could read this to a child, but they could read it to themselves if they know how to read. 
it's for six to eight year olds. And the sixteenth time they know the words by heart anyway. Right? Absolutely, right. but it's got probably more words than you'd have in a normal picture book. But um, so we we call it early chapter. But this book is also set in Paris, and it deals with this small um, diva, the the dog, the who is actually kind of timid, dog, timid, yes, yes. and um, Flea, the the cat with no home, who. Is he explains what a flaneur is to Diva and and for seven year olds a flaneur this is the character who basically goes around town just to see what's going on no. just out in the world checking things out and it's not a matter of bravery it's just what he does and of course eventually he gets a home and Diva gets to go out and experience the world too and he learns to be a little bit braver so there's this whole transition for your characters in the, in a very short book so it's. It's sweet. So we Lady like and the Tramp meets the cat in Paris. Yes, but yeah. they're not. It's not a real relationship book in that way. But no. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to identify it. Yeah. Another one we're going to have. This one is uh, for younger. The Big Bear Little Chair. I brought Big Bear Little Chair with me because I wanted to show you. You could see the amazing ah. illustrations in this book. <laughs> it's all black, white, gray, and red. And it's very simple concepts of big and little. And then it gets to big and little and tiny at the end. You know, you have a, a big seal, a little castle, and a tiny bucket. But it's very simple. It's for youngest kids, and you know, learning interesting concepts of, of big and small right. opposites. Uh, you brought a book in last year that was about a, a boy who goes to a library and gets trapped. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. That's the... Um, uh, Miyazaki? No. Yeah, it was um, Anyway, the illust- Murakami. Murakami. The illustrations have very similar feel yes. to that. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, West Coast, we're very Japanese-influenced, I'd say. And this yeah. is done by Lizzie Boyd, is it? Lizzie Boyd. Yes. Yes. Cool. Very interesting. So that one's a, that's a real picture book. This is a real picture right. book, yes. Okay, Adam Mark. Makos. Adam Mako. Why would I want to put an R in there? Ah, this Devotion. Book, yes, this book is called Devotion, Adam Makos. And, you know, it's the subtitle is An Epic Story of Heroism, Friendship, and Sacrifice. Nonfiction, true well, let me, story. Let me give a little clue to our listeners, because on the, ti- on the cover, you he see a range of mountains, Himalayan sort of looking mountains, and two World War II era propeller, I guess they're bombers because they've got bombs underneath them, right? Yes. Yes, going over those mountains. Is that right? Yes, it's the Korean War. Okay, Korean. Okay. Okay, and what this story is about is these two young fighter pilots in the Korean War make a very tight friendship. Now, um, Tom actually is a white guy from New England, and Jesse is a young black man from Mississippi. And they just become the best fighter pilots ever, and they keep in close touch, and they run very dangerous missions. But they are in a group of fighter pilots um, flying. They fly for the Navy, so they are actually carrier fighter, ah, you know, yes. flying off the boats. It's very right. dangerous. And at one point when they're on a mission, Jesse's plane goes down, and Tom just can't believe it. And ignoring all his superiors, he actually lands his plane on the side of the mountain where Jesse's plane goes down. It beggars the imagination. 
and gets to Jesse's plane and tries to free him. Jesse's trapped in the wreckage, and he cannot get him out, and the air is so thin, and he himself in landing has cracked his vertebrae and damaged himself. So by another miracle, he realizes he needs they need to call in a helicopter. In the meantime, they're under enemy fire, and they... Um, Stop. Don't tell us what happened. Nope. I'm just going to okay. say that he has to call in more help, and that is the story. And it is... Such a riveting story and also just astonishing that we don't know more about this, that it's taken this many years and really gorgeous, wonderful. Beautiful words. It's it's just amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Devotion, an epic story of heroism, friendship, and sacrifice by Adam Makos. Makos. Oh, I think it's Makos, yes. Yeah. Let's go back to someone else, someone known as uh, the Bard, the mysterious Monsieur Shakespeare, who may have been somebody who, or may not have been that somebody, but anyway, he wrote a book, a play called King Lear. So in James Shapiro's new book, The Year of Lear, subtitled Shakespeare in 1606, what's interesting and what I learned that I didn't know was that when Elizabeth I died in 1603, Shakespeare, by the way, all the playwrights and musicians of those times were basically supported by the courts. Mm -hmm. And so they felt well, that... Wait a minute. I'm remembering Shakespeare in Love. I thought it was the people who paid were the ones who ran the uh, theaters. The, well, the, the ones who ran the theaters were the wealthy people that were the fringes of the courts, certainly. Okay. Yes. And after Elizabeth died, they because she was also a patron of Shakespeare, or in the very least, a patron of the people that own the theaters, they felt that, or he felt that perhaps, and there was a supposition that his strongest part of his career was over. But in fact, when um, King James from Scotland came in and they called it the Jacobean era, right. he was through the skin of his teeth, still supported and wrote several of his most famous plays, uh, King Lear, Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra came right after that. And this story tells you the day-to-day -day life of not only all the intrigue and all the effort it took to survive and get the theaters and the plays to show his plays, but also how he walked down the street and stumbled over cobblestones and what the texture was of his wool clothes and who made them and how they he got enough food to feed his family. It's really, really an interesting, close-knit look at a short period of time, 1606 in Shakespeare's sounds, life. Sounds fascinating. We have to look at Frederick Forsyth's new uh, book, The Outsider. Now, everyone who is a thriller nut knows that name. Well, I hope so. He mostly, I think, people would recognize his name as the writer, the author of The Day of the Jackal, also the author of The Odessa Files, also um, Dogs of War, and 13 other novels. Yeah, with a white cover and then some kind of splash of color in the Right, yeah, right. In right. a way, he's kind of... Um, well, he isn't a precursor to Ian Fleming, but he's certainly very early on with these espionage yeah. thrillers. Well, what this book, which is called The Outsider, My Life in Intrigue by Frederick Forsyth. So this is an autobiography. What this book is about is the fact that he was an RAF pilot in the late 1950s. And in that era, what was um, 
supreme in all of sort of the military and political machinations was spying and intrigue. That mm-hmm. was the height of everybody trying to get better and better at spying what the other guy was doing. So it turns out that during his years of being a pilot, and he also spoke several languages fluently, he was in one close scrape after another. And he names names and tells you the history and tells you who he sat with and who he overheard and what he did with that information. And this reads like one of his novels. It's fascinating and wonderful. A true crime novel, but a true spy novel. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, let's do City on Fire. Did you want to do one more? I think I'm kind of done. Okay, City on Fire, because it's in front of you. City on Fire is a novel by Garth Risk Hallberg. And you can see, Gil, that this novel is at least 750 pages. And that I have to, I'm going to say right away, I probably shouldn't have said that because in this sense, don't be daunted. Don't think, oh, you know, it's that's... It's shorter than the last Harry Potter. I yeah. know. There you go. I don't want you to, folks, to not turn to this by virtue of that it's a very large novel. Okay. So it is set in New York City, in particular, really focused in Manhattan in the 19, 1977, covers about six months of time. There was a great rolling blackout that happened in New York at the time, mm-hmm. and that is kind of uh, three-fourths of the way through the book when all these various factions and forces come together, this blackout plays a huge People role. People trapped in elevators and yeah. very high skyscrapers. Yeah. yeah. So so there are young people. There are. This is also the beginning of the punk music scene in New York. There are very, very wealthy people. This is the beginning of um, – it's not so much beginning, but precursor to the hedge fund f- incredibly rich folks who made money overnight. So there's all these various – societies in New York. And also, this was a time when the streets were really not very safe. So very, very rich, very poor, very edgy uh, people who all mix up by virtue of running into each other in the subway or in the park. And there is actually someone, a young girl who's shot in Central Park very much early on in the book. And that thread does wind itself all the way through the book. But this is not a mystery. It is a slice of life. It is so well told. He manages his cast of characters extremely well. You will know who's who in no time, (laughs) even though there's a fair amount of them. And it's really sharp writing. And I have to say this author is still in his 20s. He's something wow. he's I believe he's about 28 29. It is an amazing novel. He's writing a time before he was born. Though. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And reviews have commented on that that what a great handle he has on the era. It's it's if he has um absorbed the smells and the flavor and the darkness and the light of New York in that time. Be a good comparison with the book on Paris. Yeah. 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 A, a slice of time. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yes, except fiction. This has been fascinating as always. Ho, ho, ho. I am your Santa Claus of a host, Gil Manser, who, with my wizard of a studio engineer, Jesse Fankushin, theme music composer, Bill Conti, KRCB-FM program director, Sean Knight, and radio elf, Wendy Nicholson, we want to wish you the most joyous of holiday cheer. We're glad you've shared the last hour with us for the 2015 Holiday Gift Books edition of Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Once again, we're pleased that the book buyers from the local Copperfields bookstores, Cheryl Cotelier and Michelle Bella, 
were us with us to have the challenging task of choosing and talking about which books that you should buy for gifts this year and only in less than one hour. Books that we talked about are, wow, we've got Ivory Vikings, we've got uh, My Life on the Road by Gloria Steinem, we've got The Other Paris, we've got Devotion, we've got Pacific Silicon Chips and Surfboards, we've got The Japanese Lover by Isabel Allende, City on File by Garth Hallberg, Twain and Stanley Enter Paradise by Oscar Huelos, we've got uh, My Kitchen, wow, California's Wild Edge, The Bridge Will Not Be Gray, and many more, which I'll summarize online for you. We thank our listeners for their continued tangible support of KRCB-FM. Our next Word by Word show will be broadcast from 4 to 5 on the afternoon of Sunday, January 10th, when our guest will be Sonoma State creative writing professor Stefan Kiesbeek, sharing from his newest book, The Staked Plains. Until then, let me be the first to wish you Happy New Year.